For those who are following along in the Scriptures, we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. Now this morning, I know this is a shocker, but I want to speak to you about concerning Jesus. Okay, that, that's why we're here, right? This isn't for somebody to wax eloquent about current events or what's happening next week. But I want us to understand specifically how the Scriptures give us insight regarding Jesus after He rose from death. After He rose from death. Now, my focus today is not providing evidence for the resurrection. That's for a different day. That's for a different Sunday. Uh, if you want to read some good books on that subject, The Case for Christ is a great book. The Case for the Resurrection by Gary Habermas is a good book. They prove that Jesus lived. They prove that He lived after He died and He rose from death. Those are, I consider them irrefutable if you keep your mind open and understand the Scriptures. But concerning the truth of God rising or somebody rising from the dead, Jesus Himself said this, it won't convince someone unless they choose to, uh, to agree with it to, they, if they don't believe the Scriptures. If someone walked in the door that rose from death, for someone who doesn't want to believe, they would speak it away. Now, does that mean that someone who hears that truth that doesn't believe is thrown out on the trash heap, that God says, well, you don't believe, you're gone? No, that's not the case at all. It's not saying that you will never have the chance to hear the good news again, but yet we do not, when we, do not know when we will be able to hear the good news again. Each of us are this close. Notice I am holding my fingers together from when we'll leave our, breathe our last breath. No one knows when the opportunity will pass by or ever be offered again, but I do know this, that Jesus is patient and kind, and that each one of you are here today. I am here today, and we bear testimony to that truth, that He is good. He's good. I'd like for us to consider from the Gospel of John the truths about the risen Savior Jesus and how He interacts with different people or different groups. He might be working with you today. Understand this, He is the understanding risen Lord. By that, what I mean, He understands you. Like it or not, and I don't like it at all, people are driven by their emotions. Certainly some more than others, definitely more than others, but often we expand a lot of energy attempting to deal with our emotions. If you go to the Google machine, which I often do to find the information, and I searched out an alphabetical list of emotions and feelings, an alphabetical list from A to Z, and I got to the letter A. Believe me, I, I, there were 46 words, 46. 
Now, I'm not going to read them all to you, but emotions and, and feelings such as agitated, aggressive, amazed, anguished, amused, angry, annoyed, anxious, ashamed, and I continue and continue and continue and continue. Now, many of these emotions were exhibited by those who were part of the resurrection story that Sunday morning some two millennia ago. And the understanding that the risen Lord Jesus patiently worked with each one to bring them to an understanding of saving, vibrant, life-changing faith. These were confused folks. I think we're often misled. We always say Sunday's coming and it's, it's going to be a great day. It wasn't a great day for them until the evening. They were still confused. They saw Christ killed a very, very bad death. He was killed really bad. And they couldn't believe, humanly speaking, that He would come back from the dead. Well, we already heard the first ten verses, and James Funk read them very eloquently, and I thank him. I threatened him earlier that if he didn't read it, he, well, it, it would blow the whole sermon, and I blamed it on him. I can't blame you, James. You did a good job. Thank you. That's the introduction to what happened at the empty tomb. The rest of the chapter, and that's John chapter 20, provides us three different people or people groups who had an emotional transformation because of the truth of the empty tomb and the one who couldn't be held by it. It couldn't, he could not be held by the tomb. The three, Mary Magdalene, the disciples, and Thomas. Our introduction begins with the resurrection. Mary, she was a woman from Magdala, hence Mary Magdalene. It's a place very, very close to Capernaum. It's on the south side of the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum is where Jesus' headquarters was. That's where his home base, that's where he worked out of during his time in Galilee. And this place, this woman, she had been delivered by Christ by 75, or excuse me, seven demons. She had been delivered from seven demons. She owed a lot to him. Now, I don't mean how we speak of the demon of alcoholism or the demon of this. These were real demons. These were real evil spirits. And she owed everything to Christ. And it was still dark on that Sunday morning, and she arrived, and she, what did she see first? She saw a half a ton stone. That's a thousand pounds. That's what folks, most folks believe that this thing weighed. Removed from the front of the tomb. Removed. Now, throughout the gospel, John had emphasized, and he, I said it was still dark, I'm sorry. He emphasized light and dark, light and dark. Now, often he look, used that as a, basically a statement for having a light spiritually, we could see, or dark spiritually. But this, he meant it was literally dark. She showed up, and she walked in the dark. She was preparing to honor her Lord 
She was going to bring spices. It wasn't to embalm him. It was to just give him honor, to spices. So, honestly, the death smell wouldn't permeate so much. But know this, her spirit was in a dark place too. If her Jesus being crucified wasn't enough, she now comes to a tomb that's been rolled away, and she honestly probably would have gone to, somebody has already robbed this grave. Because she, like the other disciples, didn't hear what Jesus had said over and over and over again. The other Gospels tell us that the soldiers who were guarding the tomb, they were standing there as if they were dead. How does a dead man stand? Very still. They were shocked. There had been an earthquake. It doesn't even say that she looked in. The, in. She just sees this and she runs. Verse tell, 2 tells us it's on the screen. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is John's title for himself. And said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Please, with a higher pitched tone than that. A tone that was. Ah! Panicked because she assumed that Jesus' body had been moving or stolen. Well, John and Peter, they heard her. I don't know if they believed her, but they believed her enough to where they ran to the tomb, and Peter and John, they, they run there. Now, whether John was younger, in better shape, or just faster than Peter, he got there first. Now, because first century tombs were low to the ground, they were low, they had a stone rolled in front of them, they were almost like a, a cave. Some were, tombs were caves, some others were hewn out of the rocks. This is what Jesus' tomb was. It tells us that in another gospel. They needed to bend down to look in. They, they had to check it out like this. And they, John saw the grave clothes, nothing else. Nothing else. Now, I have a question for you. This is just a slight detour. If robbers had stolen the body, why would they have left the expensive linen strips and the 75 pounds of spices, which costs a lot? Why would they have left it there? Even more so, like the uh, chief priest said, why, if you are a disciple, why would you take the time to unwrap a body that you were trying to dispose of and leave that there? You're going to get it, and you're going to hoof it as fast as you possibly can because you do not want to be caught. I'm done. Well, Peter finally arrives, no doubt huffing and puffing, and he steps past John, and he walks, dips down directly into the tomb, impetuous as he was. He looks, he sees no corpse, only the linen. 
It's just as if Jesus had passed right through the grave clothes. Hmm. Only then did John step inside. He saw and believed. Now, what did he believe? I don't know. That's still up for debate. He believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but look at this next scripture. He believed that Jesus had rose, but they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And we means John and Peter, and thus the rest of the disciples. So they're still confused, but John might have a glimmer of hope. He didn't understand that it had been predicted. This, this half of your, not even half, this part of your Bible speaks to Jesus. It's important. We don't throw it away. The prophet spoke of him rising again. But what was the significance of the event other than Christ's body wasn't there? Well, we'll soon see. They went back so to where they were, where they were staying. They were confused. We'll understand, yet they were still fearful. And this sets the stage for the understanding Savior to bring his emotionally needy disciples along at a slower pace. If you haven't caught on yet, we're all emotionally needy. We all need Jesus to come across, to come us, beside us and speak to us. Well, the first example of that kind of disciple is Mary Magdalene. And she comes from grief or moves from grief to purpose. This woman owed her life to Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, her life had been devastated by seven demons which Jesus had cast out of her. And she had been one of his faithful disciples ever since then. She followed along and she took care of Jesus. Verse 11 tells us, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now, when we see weeping, we understand that. But the word can also be translated as wailing. She was distraught. She was devastated. She was in emotional anguish. She was a mess. She had lost everything. In the three days that she'd, she'd made the trip from Jerusalem to the tomb at least three times, she's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And like the other disciples who were close, her world had been ripped apart when Jesus was killed. When he was buried, her grief was so deep and dark that they felt that it would be impossible for life to ever be normal, and I put normal in air quotes, or happy again, because they would never have Jesus, they felt, to walk with and talk with anymore. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And Again, I believe that John was right this morning, John who preached this morning, and I believe John was meant this to say this too. 
It was a gentle rebuke. Behind it, everything. Didn't you hear what he said? Didn't you hear what Jesus said? I'm going to rise again. She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, I like this. It doesn't even register to her that she's speaking to heavenly beings here. Remember, the heavenly beings, which the other folks saw, boom, straight on their face, out of fear and trembling. They make an entrance. She even converses with them. How could this happen? How could this happen? She was so devastated. She was too devastated to think. I don't think she, maybe, maybe she couldn't even see them clearly through her tears. And then I, I asked this question. Did the angels... Did they point? Did they bow down? Did she sense movement behind her? We aren't told. Verse 14 continues, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her again, repeating the words of the angels, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, he said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. How could this happen to Mary? How could this happen? How could she be so blind as not to see? A theologian answers this question for us that I just asked. He said, but Mary was just like us. Oh, I hate it when they say that. Have you ever found yourself, he continues, in a distressing circumstance when the sky seems to come crashing down on you, and Christian, that you are, you immediately, excuse me, the Christian, oh, that you are, you immediately forget all the promises of God. You felt sorry for yourself. You became anxious and upset. He says, I have and I have to raise my hand up too. I have. We so quickly forget the promises of God. The great... I wouldn't even use the word great. Martin Luther. Martin Luther once spent three days in a black depression over something that had gone wrong. And on the third day, his loving wife came downstairs dressed in mourning clothes. And Luther looked at her and said, who died? And she said, God. Now, Luther, of course, being the theologian that he was, he had to gently rebuke her because that was not good theology. 
What do you mean God's dead? He cannot die. Well, she replied, the way you've been acting, I was sure that he had. Many of us have been caught in that trap, haven't we? This is also what happened to Mary. She couldn't see past her circumstances, and the circumstances were dire. She didn't understand who Jesus really was. Tell me where he is, and I will take him away. This emotionally devastated individual is now confronted by the risen Lord. Jesus said to her, Mary, I don't know if it was the way that he said it, or maybe she could finally see his eyes. We don't know, we're not, tell, we're not told, was she finally allowed to really see who he really was? We don't know this, but all the fear of not having her Savior to talk to, to take care of her, was gone. All the anguish, all the despair are instantly swallowed up by astonishment and delight. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabboni, which means teacher. Matthew tells us that she bowed down and she grabbed onto his feet, not letting him go. You've gotten away from me once. You're not getting away again. My words, not scriptures. She wanted it to be the way that it was before this terrible three days had happened where they'd interrupted her life and everybody else's life along with her. But everything had changed, and definitely for the better. And now one of the most puzzling statements in the Scriptures, and Jesus said to her, we're looking, why are you being this way, Jesus? Why are you, why do you say this? Do not cling to me, for I have yet to ascend to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Was he saying, don't touch me anymore. I'm not, you're not worthy to touch me. No, that's not the case at all because we'll understand later in this passage that's not the case at all. He invites someone to touch him then. But why is he telling her this? I believe the best answer comes from a theologian named Andreas Kustenberger where he writes, and I quote, it highlights a change that has occurred with Jesus and his disciples a transition period which they cannot revert back to how they related to, to him in their past. Their relationship will now be mediated by the Holy Spirit. Now think to me, when Jesus was on earth the first time before his death, he was a man. He was governed by the law of nature. He could only be in one spot at one time. And most of that time in the Galilee region. If he was not changed, if the relationship had not changed, he couldn't be close to you when you need him. He couldn't be close to you when you need him the most. 
He'd be a distant Savior, but he, now he's with us through his Holy Spirit. He promised that in John 15 through 17. He'd not yet been glorified, but would be soon, be soon when he ascended into heaven. And he immediately calls Mary to action. Go! She is the first person to go and spread the news that he is risen. In Mark, we read those women, they were terrified, but they were still charged to go. Mary, she went and she told the men. Her grief turns to purpose. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. One man has said, without the resurrection, there's no alternative to crippling, deepening, paralyzing grief. But with the resurrection, the grief turns into purpose and mission and zeal to share the message of the resurrection with others. Things have changed. Things have changed. And when I know Jesus and you know Jesus, and one of us goes to heaven first, think about that. A good friend, a wife, a husband, a son or a daughter goes to heaven first. There's understandable grief, but that grief somehow refocuses our attention on spreading the good news of Jesus until he comes or until he takes us home. But with Easter, but with Resurrection Sunday, without it, there's nothing but death. But with this day, with the resurrection, with the truth of that, we have hope. Without today, there'd be no tomorrow, but there'd be just darkness. But with it, we have life. The philosopher could say, everything is meaningless. The troubadour could sing, all we are is dust in the wind. And whether we lived another 50 minutes or 50 years would matter not. Shakespeare would be right. Life is an idiotic tale signifying nothing. But the resurrection changed that. Mary was changed by encountering the understanding risen Lord. Now we come to the gathered disciples where they're transitioned from fear to joy. Well, where there had once been 12... There were now 10, at least 10 present. Judas the betrayer was dead. He'd hung himself. Thomas, he was AWOL. We don't know whether he, what, where he was. Was he hiding himself or was he too distraught to continue? What was he doing? Where was he at? We aren't told. But the other disciples, the other 10, plus the two who walked with Christ from Emmaus, plus the other ones who were gathered there who aren't named, they're there trying to make sense out of the day. What is going on? We've, the women have seen the Lord. These two men from Emmaus, that walked, they talked with Jesus. They've seen the Lord. What, what's happening? Had any of them begun to put two and two together? I don't throw them under the bus because we'd be doing the same thing. 
risen, just as he said. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked, being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They killed our master, they killed our leader. Thomas is. They could kill us. What's going to happen? Fear. Fear. Fear of something that can't, will hurt you, really is a good thing. It causes fear in our body. It gives a extra energy. Really good definition of a person who works with a person with fear. Now think with me. Who's the one we're talking about today who is working with people with fear? See if this definition doesn't emulate Christ. It takes a well-developed capacity for compassion to respect Feel sympathetic toward and patiently reassure someone who is afraid of something we are not afraid of. Most of us dismiss such fears. We do not need to feel another person's fear to accept it and to help them cope. Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Godly peace is defined, and I'm glad I'm wearing a tie because I feel very scholarly this morning. <clears throat> Again, defined as being something only God can provide because He is separate from all confusion and disorder in His being and actions. Yet He is continually active in His well-ordered, fully controlled simultaneous actions. Meaning this. He's got this. He's got you. Have peace. He is peace. He is peace. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then his disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And Jesus never saves anyone so they can remain where they are and remain the same. He is sending those who he saves. We are all given forgiveness in life to be able to tell others what God has done for us. And what has he done? He's provided peace. He's provided life. He's provided forgiveness. There's no guilt left. And he doesn't give us a spirit of timidity, of fear, but of boldness. And this was John's version of the Great Commission. He continues in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, you're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now, this was a symbolic promise that as soon which would be given, the Holy Spirit would be given to them in 50 days later at Pentecost. 
And when he was given them, they were told, you must tell others. They'd be given the message of forgiveness through Jesus' death and new life, which is what? Assured by his resurrection. And they're given the authority to tell everyone that good news. And this message is received. The hearer will be forgiven. There's no other means of salvation by any name. This is personally the disciples. We see Thomas moving from doubt to conviction. As John mentioned earlier, the, the gospel writer John, Thomas wasn't there. I guess we could say he skipped church that Sunday. Whether he was despondent, disillusioned, or disappointed, the thing that we do know is that he missed Jesus. He missed him when he showed up the first time and he missed Jesus. He missed being with him. But understand this, Jesus didn't want to miss Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, and it's written in the original Greek, they kept telling him, they kept telling him, We've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. It's not a one and done thing. We've seen him. We've seen him. We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and, the place, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into this side, I will never believe. Never. Ever, ever, ever. A theologian has said Thomas is really no different than us. He's a man whose faith will only become reality when the concrete evidence of the resurrection is provided to him. He possesses no experience at the empty tomb, nor has he heard or seen Jesus. Faith for him is daunting and impossible. He is a template for us who read or hear the story of Jesus from a distance. We hear the report, we read John's gospel, and at once are challenged to believe. Well, Thomas obtains what he desires and so believes, but he misses the blessing that Jesus promises to those who believe, even though they can't touch his wounds. This is precisely our position as we live out our lives and our faith in the modern world. I've never seen Jesus personally. I've never heard his voice speak to me audibly except through the scriptures. But I've believed. And I can guarantee you that he lives. But listen now to how the understanding risen Lord gently deals with Thomas. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And again, they were still scared. 
they were still hiding. That's another reason why the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. They still had much fear. And Thomas was with them. And all the door, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, this is getting old, Jesus. Don't you have any other words? They must have had to hear this over and over again. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He didn't answer this in a valley girl voice. This was not something where it says, oh my God, it's not that. This Jewish man called the man standing in front of him, Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, my Lord and my God. Which would be blasphemous. And did Jesus say, don't say that? Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you. That's us. You're more blessed than Thomas. A man was out with his wife, and they got caught in a terrible hailstorm. And it was a massive hailstorm, and it was a Midwestern hailstorm, ones that, are, that bring hail as large as baseballs. And under the deluge of, that was coming against them, the man realized that if he didn't do something to protect his wife, that his wife was going to be terribly injured or even worse. So he quickly draped himself over his wife, just doing what he could to protect her. And in doing that, he kept her safe, but the hailstones hit him. Now, the hailstones seemed to get bigger. Of course, to him it felt bigger because they were just, it was just getting worse. And as the man bent over his wife, protecting her, the large things, they just came down harder and harder and harder, and they hurt him really badly. He was hurt. And after a couple of minutes, his ears started bleeding, rolling down to his neck. He had, began to have cuts. And as he tried to lead his wife to safety, the pounding stones, the hailstones, began to take their toll, and weakened by the onslaught, he lost consciousness. And he just laid over his wife. After the storm was over, the man was left with scars from where the stones had battered away at him. The remnants of the sores, the cuts, the abrasions would forever be reminders to him of the day that he saved his wife. Now, I'm not just making this story up. This is a true story. And when... On a local newscast, the man's wife was asked how she felt about their experience. She said this, 
every time I look at that scar or those scars on his body, on his face, I love him more. Every time I see the scar, I love him. I love him he, because he sacrificed himself for me. When you and I get to heaven, Jesus will be the only person in eternity with scars. He'll have holes in his hands, holes in his feet, and a hole in his side. He will be an eternal reminder that the only reason that you are here is because he took the great wrath of God that each one of us deserve because of sin. And he took God's wrath and the judgment that was headed our way, and he covered you with his love and allowed none of that hail to damage you. He was disfigured for you. This is the love of Christ. The purpose of John's writing his entire account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from John 1 through chapter 20 is summarized in the last two verses. What he writes is also why we have sung and spoken of God's love for you and me today. We don't do this because there's nothing on TV to watch. We don't do this because we don't have anything to eat at home. We do this because Jesus is Lord, and He demands our worship, and He deserves our worship, and He came to save sinners, and He said this, John wrote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in His name. I ask you the question, and it's pointed. Have you believed? Have you believed? He offers forgiveness and eternal life if you turn from your sin and your unbelief and believe in Him. He will transform you spiritually, which will transform you emotionally. It'll change the way you live because you've been changed from the inside. The understanding risen Lord calls for you to choose. Believe as Thomas did. Believe by bowing a knee and saying and truly believing, my Lord and my God. What do we believe? We believe that, Jesus, you came to earth. You lived a perfect life. You willingly died a death on a cross to atone for my sins. You took my place. You were buried, you rose again, and you're forever alive. Admit that I have sinned, 
I've fallen short of God's perfect standard. I deserve punishment, but I trust that you took my sentence of death upon yourself. I accept your forgiveness and the eternal life that you freely offer. Because you live, I will too. Thank you, Jesus, my Lord and my God. Father, as we get ready to sing the last song, I ask your spirit to move. Convict those who need you. but also touch our hearts so we sing and we praise and we honor you because you live. Thank you.